0: Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lennox
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients, the idea being that celebrity estate planning stories although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We actually have two guests today. The first, Peter Newman, is founder and CEO of Chrome Strategies Management, LLC. He has more than 34 years of institutional, financial, commodity, and global trading experience, having held senior roles in the sales and trading groups at two top-tier firms, and working within the commodities and commodity-linked structures sector. Over his career, Peter was responsible for risk management, portfolio allocations, trading and product integrations across multiple asset classes. And our second guest is Steve Linden. He's also a founder, but CIO of Chrome. He is an internationally recognized expert in vintage and collector motor cars. He's the author of Car Collecting, Everything You Need to Know, and was the founding editor of Heming's Classic Wheels. Steve is also a regular columnist for Newsday and has made numerous television appearances as an expert resource. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys.
2: Thank, Thank you, you David. Thank
1: you. So, if it wasn't already terribly obvious from our guest bios, we're going to be talking about classic car collections today. Uh, and when the term cars and celebrities get mentioned together, generally the very first name that jumps to mind is Jay Leno. For those who don't have a television or electricity or something, Jay Leno is an American television host, comedian, and writer. After doing stand up comedy for years, he became the host of The Tonight Show for 22 years. Upon leaving the show in 2014, he was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. Leno owns approximately 286 vehicles, 169 cars, and 117 motorcycles. He also has a website and a TV program called Jay Leno's Garage, on which Steve has appeared, which contains video clips and photos of his car collection in detail, as well as other vehicles of interest to him. Among his collection are two, I don't know how to pronounce this, double steam cars, a sedan, and a roadster that were owned by Howard Hughes, the fifth Duesenberg Model X known to survive, and one of nine remaining 1963 Chrysler turbine cars. The collection also includes three antique electric cars, which I didn't even know were a thing. He has a regular column in Popular Mechanics, which showcases his car collection, and gives advice about various automotive topics, including restoration and unique models, such as his jet-powered motorcycle and solo-powered hybrid. Leno also writes occasional motor mouth articles for the Sunday Times, reviewing high-end sports cars, and giving his humorous take on on motoring matters. As with many of the subjects of the show, the pool of regular clients with Leno's massive asset breadth and depth of automotive knowledge are probably vanishingly rare. However, classic cars aren't exceptionally popular hobby or obsession for many, if you prefer, that hold a broad appeal to a large swath of potential clients and frankly, advisors as well. So in this regard, Lano stands as both an aspirational figure for collectors and an interesting case study in the value that such collections can accrue and the planning that inevitably accompanies such valuable assets. Peter, your firm specializes in this area. What are some of the main planning challenges clients and advisors can face when it comes to classic cars?
3: Thank you, David. I would say that one of the biggest challenges is, quite frankly, awareness. And that, as you had mentioned, people have been collecting these uh, beautiful items for quite some time. It's a passion that you know, has been around for decades, uh, almost close on a hundred years at this point. But the the the, the current situation where values have, have uh, escalated so dramatically over the last ten to fifteen years has presented a different kind of a, a backdrop that um, advisors typically are not. Conscious of or aware of, or they don 't have the skill sets or the inclination to help their clients really understand uh, the planning that is necessary to create optimal uh, outcomes and optimal outcomes from from my perspective or one of our perspectives is certainly the financial element so what we are work very very diligently at is to create a broader awareness of some of the tools. That have developed alongside the expansion of the hobby in general, to be able to uh, provide families, their advisors, uh, with with a better path forward than the traditional uh, approach, which is, I would say, we we think is probably around ninety percent of the of the approach, which is I'm going to leave this to my wife, children, fill in the blank, and let them deal with the issues. And we don't think that that makes a lot of sense. Again, given the increase in value. So uh, to put it succinctly, we think of the collections, the great collections, as more akin to art every day that goes by um, in terms of value, in terms of how one should plan for it, in terms of the diligence that should be exercised around the financial planning, as well as the physical asset planning of these vehicles. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge is making people aware of some of the alternatives that exist.
1: Now, Steve, you know, Peter mentioned this idea of awareness and in his sort of answer, he was sort of talking about awareness of the alternatives, but also, you know, is awareness of the value and that you even have a collection in the first place an issue? I mean, at what point does being a car guy transform into being a car collector? Is there a cutoff point?
2: I I think that can be answered on on several different levels. Um, Some car people are car people simply because They love and enjoy their old cars, and some of them are car people because not only do they love and enjoy them, but they also enjoy the collecting aspect of it. You know, as Peter alluded to before, up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, with with some few exceptions, of course, collecting was exactly that, collecting. But as the values of these collections increased over the last 5, 10, 15 years, these collectors, by default, became de facto investors because these these portfolios just reached such a significant value that collectors, whether they intended to be investors or not, found themselves having to deal with their collections in a different way than let me just go to the garage and look at it. So that that would be my my input on that.
1: If, you, know, maybe I should sort have of led off with this question, but you know, I've been already myself throwing around the term classic cars, perhaps incorrectly for all I know. Um, is that a term that has uh, sort of a hard and fast definition, or is it one of these things like uh, classic rock, where you know it used to mean only songs from the you know, late 60s, early 70s, and now when you turn on a classic rock station, you have songs from the 90s, and it just blows your mind. Is this a similar situation with cars, or are there sort of more well uh, sort of delineated terms for, for for what's collectible, what's classic, what
2: isn't? There there are there is no hard and fast definition that's universally accepted for the word antique classic collectible whatever it happens to be uh, it depends on what what organization you're you're referring to so the antique automobile club of america might have one definition which might be cars that are 100 years old um insurance companies might have a definition that it only need to be 25 years old uh as does the federal government for importing cars so there is no universally accepted definition but antique classic, they all seem to fall under the umbrella of collectible. And and basically what that means is if people are collecting them, they are collectible, whether they're anti-classic or more modern collectibles.
1: Back to Peter, you mentioned in your answer to my first question that, you know, the traditional, I guess, approach to planning for these collections was just to sort of dump it on the air as, you know, my wife and kids or my husband and kids, depending on the collector, you know, and you guys deal with it how does that fall down why is the traditional approach
3: less than optimal compared to your sort of your other approaches there are two s- distinct ways that i think are very critical one is how people uh, deal so beneficiaries let's say the wife the children who certainly have understood and enjoyed uncle bob or dad's cars but don't really have you know specific knowledge or expertise on actually what they are, how to start them, where's the documentation? You know, the guy down the road says it's worth this much. My uncle said it was this. My father said it was this. And, you know, there's a element of sometimes misunderstanding even by the collector themselves, or misinformation um, by the collector themselves as to some of the nuance and provenance of the particular cars. So the immediate challenge upon an event, let's say, is that what do we do with these cars today? And what is not really a, a great uh, outcome today is they'll call up the attorney, you know, pop died. Uh, we're going through all of the uh, information of the estate, whether probate, not probate, and I'm not going to get into those issues because I'm not qualified to comment on that. But, you know, where do the titles stand? And so the attorney will start to sift through the assets, um, of the owner, uh, and, and then may determine that, okay, well, let's find out a value. So they'll call a company like ourselves to get appraisals, valuations, et cetera. And they'll say, okay, well, we, we get the idea. It's worth a couple of million dollars, two, five, $10 million. And now what do we do? So the attorney says to the family typically, well, do you have any inclination to keep these cars? What do you have any interest? And the answer is, well, <laughs> you know, we don't have the capacity. So you know, broadly speaking, I'm just going to make this succinct. The answer comes out to be no. So the next conversation, the attorney will say, well, let's liquidate this either for tax purposes or let's to deal with estate taxes, or even if that is not a necessary condition at the time, there's still no capability. Thought that There's the, there's the uh, thought that they have no other uh, alternative but to liquidate. So the attorney will contact either an auction house or a dealer, Or someone, and they'll say, "Okay, well, we understand these cars are worth five million dollars." And everyone sits around a table, and the dealer comes and says, "These are wonderful cars. I agree with you; they're worth five million dollars." But I'm going to come tomorrow to take these out of the of the of the building, of the house, of the garage, of the barn. I'm going to bring my trucks up. I'm going to bring you a check tomorrow, and I'm going to pay you three point five million. I'm going to give you a discount of thirty percent. Nothing wrong with that. They may say that this is, you know, we have market risk. We have to move the cars. We have to store the cars. We have to market the cars, and that's my price today. And in many cases, what we find is that's, that's the default. Now, it can go through an auction situation, in which case the, you know, that whole process is elongated and the net results for the seller may come closer to the market, but you, one tends to have, obviously, there are commissions involved. So, in the end, you're looking at, I would guesstimate, somewhere between 20 and 30% under, under market rates, all things being equal. To eliminate a collection within a period of, let's say, in the case of the dealer, under a week or a day or whatever, and in the case of auction house, whatever that scheduling may be. So we don't find, as we're talking about here, the values these days, uh, you know, it's not like it's a $20,000 Camaro or a $7,000 Mustang where you give up 20, 30%, no big deal. When you're talking about collections, values in the millions, agreed by everyone that's in the millions and millions of dollars we think there's a better path forward what we can what we help people do is plan in advance so that they don't have that situation of evaluate and liquidate as the hobby has grown not only values but also the ability to move cars to store cars with full transparency to market them in a more efficient in a more efficient manner obviously given uh, you know the scope of uh, of marketing these days and that with the benefit of time and some planning an alternative in this scenario that i just gave you would be that an advisor has done this work before everyone knows what the cars are the the attorneys the families is all full transparency we've done cataloging such as there is an art and we say okay we have 5 million dollars of cars let's move the cars out but instead of dumping them tomorrow because who does that i mean people don't dump picassos or dump their house the next morning you know for cash let's take these away let's Take a breath, give ourselves some time, come up with a strategy, and, and then place these cars on the market. And we'll get, theoretically, one would get closer to the market. Now, obviously, markets are volatile. So one could say that, well, the market's going to drop tomorrow. And then thanks for the planning, but that didn't make any sense. But, you know, at least you're starting out 30, you know, in my mind, in our minds, 20 to 30% ahead of the game. The other thing, the other component of so that's an immediate financial alternative approach. The second element of this that we think is important is that part of this process is also to identify assets within that collection, specific cars. You mentioned some of Leno's cars. Um, we see this quite often. We'll go see collections and, and you'll go into a, a, this amazing warehouses that are all over the world, quite frankly, in these nondescript buildings all over the country, you'd be you'd be amazed and you walk in and you see these stunningly beautiful cars. Not all of them are particularly rare. They're beautiful, but we would consider some of them commodity-like. However, within, and I'm making up a number, within a collection of 30 cars, there may be three, four, five, six, seven cars that are extraordinary. They're extraordinary because of rarity, condition, provenance, historic ownership, a, a number of factors that may make those particular that may lend to those particular cars a value that is above and beyond uh, a normal example and therefore may have a place within a portfolio especially for wealthy high net worth ultra high net worth clients they may have a place given previous performance of highly of highly rare and uh, you know extraordinary examples of cars let's say or or collectibles as an alternative asset as a diversifier within a portfolio of traditional equity, fixed income, real estate, et cetera. So we may say, look, uh, these six cars, let's think about a way to maybe take these, put them in a place where the family continues to have, uh, can see them, can visit them. They're in these beautiful collector car garages that are popping up everywhere. There are cameras here, the attorney's or the fiduciaries can handle all of the uh, expenses, etc. Get rid of the 14. Let's do it slowly. Let's get closer to the market. Obviously, in, in the case of Chrome Strategies, we're fee-based, but so it's, the fees are a little bit different than a vague, right? Um, let's, let's pare down the collection let's, uh, because that might be easier for the family to, to manage, but let's hold on to these one, two, three, four, five pieces that are extraordinary. So why dump this? You know, So it's two sides of the market. You're giving up 30% just to get rid of them for no good reason other than no one's thought of an alternative. And then you forego any potential upside, obviously potential downside too. I mean, the markets are volatile. So those are two kinds of things that we think are important for people at least, at the very least, to have a conversation about, an informed conversation. And that's where we think uh, a value can be added in a typical situation and 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 uh, so one other thing I'm sorry to go on important when we we work with a bunch of attorneys and one of them that we spoke with a couple of months ago we said what would you say to clients who tell you uh, as a response to what are your plans to do with what are your plans to do with your collection and they say well I'm going to leave it to I'm going to leave it to my wife let her worry about it which is typical and then the attorney said next question you should ask that person is have you thought about taxes so there's a tax element cap, you know, because of the extraordinary rise in the, the difference between basis and current market that really needs should be part of the conversation. We like to sit aside attorneys, tax people as they advise their clients on what type of structures may be appropriate and how in our role, we can act as a fiduciary to help uh, facilitate uh, the handling of these assets while their tax and wealth advisors give them the proper counsel. So it's. There's a tag, aside from the first two parts, which is don't sell it just tomorrow. Secondly, let's keep some because they're great. The third thing is, have you thought about taxes? And that's an important conversation that needs to be had. So,
1: Steve, you know, Peter has you know, made the direct comparison to art and you know, other collectibles, and we're using a lot of words like provenance and, and such that you usually you know, hear mostly in those Areas most commonly, I know that you know that as those are also growing asset classes that are also somewhat volatile. Um, the their sort of nature as, as a physical item as opposed to what, you know people are normally used to investing in equities, which are you know sort of ephemeral in a way, right? Or or real estate where it's just here is this immovable building which has its own costs. But you know, with a piece of of, of chattel like uh, cars, what, are there logistical additional concerns that have to come in here? Additional costs, additional. Uh, burdens on the uh, surviving family that need to be taken into account?
2: There are. Um, I, I'm not an art expert, but I, I do work, believe it or not, with museums and, and um, art groups on a regular basis. And I think in many ways, uh, art is is somewhat easier than cars to to store. When, when these families have these collections, particularly large collections, uh, it, it certainly goes without saying that they take up a lot more room than art you know, or other alternative assets, whether it be wine or coin or whatever, cars take up a lot of room. Uh, They also have to be stored properly or they deteriorate. So deterioration is certainly a consideration. Um, We've looked at a lot of collections where people have had just absolutely stunning cars, you know, that they parked in these beautiful facilities 5, 10, 15 years ago, and they look absolutely gorgeous. But when you investigate clothes, they are no longer operable. They're no longer in running condition because somebody just parked them and left them there. Uh, so there is a, an ongoing maintenance regimen that really has to be addressed when you store vehicles you know, versus things like art. And and that is one of the things that we consult on is is, is what to do with these vehicles over a protracted period of time.
1: It's interesting. Uh, I actually thought about this with the idea of running condition because, you know, uh... Peter made it sound like a lot of the most valuable uh, items here are kind of going to be like museum pieces. So, you know, but I guess it it matters whether (laughs) this car that ostensibly may never be driven again could still have the potential to be driven.
2: Yes, that's a a very, very good point. And they all have the potential to be driven at some point. But the the question is, um, do you really want to let it deteriorate or do you want to give it, you know, the proper care that it deserves so that it is, you know, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, ready to go at any point in time. And uh, that also lends to the value of the vehicle, because when it comes time to sell a car, you know, this is almost common sense, but people really don't think about it. I've walked into collections so many times where you look at an absolutely beautiful car and you open up the hood of the car and the engine looks like the day it left the factory, uh, but the vehicle hasn't run in 20 years. And when somebody says to me, what's this car worth? And I tell them, they're shocked. And the reason that I have to tell them that it's worth substantially less than they think it is, is because most of these appraisals are done or what are called fair market value. And fair market value has, you know, three main components. One is a willing buyer and a willing seller. Uh, The second one is no time constraints, but the most important one is reasonable knowledge of the facts. And when a buyer walks in to look at one of these cars, no matter how nice it looks, if that car has been sitting for 20 years, they have to make the assumption that the car does not run and drive. And that when they make that assumption, all of a sudden, the dollar signs start going off in their head that this is going to cost me 10, dollars 30, dollars dollars $50,000 to recommission the car before I can even determine its actual condition. So curating a car or a collection of cars is really, really very different from a lot of other alternative assets.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, thus far, we've sort of talked about after the uh, the collector dies, and I know in other collectible contexts, there's often a giant knowledge gap that ensues um, when when the collector himself dies. A lot of times, they're the foremost knowledge of their collection that exists. They're probably you know, depending on how serious the collector is, they may be amongst the most one percent of the most knowledgeable people about that particular topic in the world, and they're often handing off the keys. Pardon the pun of this collection to not only people who didn't collect it and have no passion about it, but also who have dramatically less knowledge, even maybe no knowledge about what they've been handed. How do you try to address this in, in the classic car context, if it comes
2: up? As somebody said to me not too long ago, and they really summed it up in one sentence. Uh, when, when you're talking to somebody about planning, you know, succession planning or whatever it happens to be, somebody summed it up for me in one absolutely fantastic sentence, which is, Nobody knows more about your cars than you do, which is exactly what you were alluding to. And it is true that nobody knows more about this collection than the person who built the collection. And, and at the point in time where that knowledge is no longer available, that translates into a diminishment in value of these vehicles. So we, we address it simply by addressing it in a forthright manner. And you know, some people, quite frankly, say, I don't care. And there's not really much that you can say to that. You know, most people are receptive and understand, you know, that there is a responsible thing to do. But quite frankly, some people just don't care and there's not much you can do. But the people who do care, uh, we can help them either through cataloging or potentially even adding value through through getting documentation that quite often vehicle owners don't even know is available, you know, from central sources. And it, it really is just summed up in one word, planning. So if they're open to planning, we're there to help.
1: I imagine cars have, you know, in terms of identifying that there's something valuable there, it's it's probably if you see 20 cars in a garage, this probably has some indication that that's worth money versus finding a box of baseball cards in the, in the attic or grandpa's old military uniforms from World War II or something.
2: Yeah, that's very true. Yeah.
1: Now, I know another, also another context, and this, and this is you know, when you're planning with the living collector, you know, often, obviously, this is their life's work. They're exceptionally close to it. In a lot of ways, it's almost sort of uh, similar, I imagine, to a... Uh, like someone who started a business, right? They a lot of times will will not be able to imagine and really think clearly about the business in terms of them not being part of it. So I know in other collecting contexts, often maintaining it as a collection can take on outsized importance to the collector in the planning process. Is that something that you see with cars or that has value in cars sort of maintaining the Johnson collection? Or is it really more of a cherry picking sort of situation that you described before where the idea of the collection is sort of less important unless it's a very specific person?
3: I think I think your last comment was spot on because we have noticed over the last really only couple of years that the cachet of a collection, notwithstanding someone like someone like let's say a Jay Leno or someone like uh, a Ralph Lauren, uh, Ralph Lauren, and you know having one of the longest standing, I mean modern history, longest standing and most valuable collections on the planet. I mean there are others as well. There is some value for cars that come out of those collections or if those collections are sold as a whole it is specific to the the collector themselves and uh, the obvious one obvious thought is that notwithstanding that they may have collected a series in a particular mark that has a historical significance in and of itself in other words he's got every porsche from 1956 through you know 2021, boom, 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 boom. Notwithstanding that type of curated situation, the other element is that you know it came from a good home, right? So as Steve was describing before, when cars are just put in a barn and look very nice, but are not, uh, as we may say, exercised or or you know maintained in the way that one needs to to. You know, keep them, keep them. You know, in good in good shape. When they're when in a collections like those, you know that they have been tended to in a proper way. So that can help take away an element of risk that Steve was talking about. Secondly, um, increasingly over the past, again, several years, there is some value that, in, in increasing, we feel increasingly so, that is attributed to that name recognition. And, you know, so if it comes from a, uh, it's, it's interesting, this whole community, it's a community of car collectors. And when you sit down with car guys, they'll talk to, I know we only have a short period of time on this podcast, which is good because we could talk all day. And when you go to a car show, guys just constantly talk about everything and everything and it just never stops because there are so, ele- so many elements that make it interesting um, uh, having, having uh, vehicles that come out of a collection may have some you know, additional value, either because how they were cared for, who owned them, or because of provenance of the ownership. So race history uh, is very, very important. For example, Steve McQueen is gold, right? Paul Newman is gold. I mean, there are some names, and I know that's not specific exactly to your question, but coming out of a named collection or by a famous collector c- can bring different elements of value. And, and getting back to your first comment about, uh, and what Steve was talking about, you led the conversation on is that the owners know the most It's uh, about their collection. It's very, very interesting because, you know, I started a little bit of my tiny little collection back when I was a college kid. And at the time, in the 70s, you know, at that time, documentation wasn't a big deal. Like Steve has had a hundred, you know, we've both had hundreds of fun cars. Um, you know, documentation just wasn't a thing so you'll go into these uh, collections and while the owners may have started to build up that provenance that we've been talking about they may not have all the documents that the current uh, sophisticated buyer wants to see so again if there's a choice of two beautiful cars sitting in a in a on display which is going to sell which 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 is more marketable let's just put it that way which is more attractive more attractive is more documentation, more disclosure, even if it's not you know always pretty disclosure, more disclosure, more transparency, um, and you know anything that can add distinction to that collection these are in many cases these are trophy you know think of what makes a trophy rarity, you know exclusivity, previous ownership, was it in a race, was it you know in a you know vintage racing history, all of these things are distinguishing factors. So owners need some help sometimes. Certainly when they're planning, it's important for this to be delineated uh, and to be documented and for it to be transparency around that. So everyone in the room um, knows that when, you know, dad goes to that car track in the heaven, everyone understands the value. And then at least you can make educated decisions. So, I
1: mean... When you're working with the actual collector, when there's still a lot of trying to do this planning, how, uh, and this is going to change for every person, obviously, but in general terms, how agreeable is that process? I mean, is it ever get adversarial? Obviously, you, you know, you're occasionally going to have to come in. Um, you're talking about the dissolution of someone's life work. A lot of times, you know, they're facing their own mortality. These are very emotional topics. And also, there's a potential that you're telling them like, hey, half your collection isn't worth anything or is not worth keeping. And then they have to reckon with their personal connection to it and that sort of knowledge. So what is, what is that sort of relationship? What does that process uh, look like sort of emotionally between you and then these these, co- these co- collection?
3: Of- I, I would say that there is resistance. At the, uh, there's been resistance at the outset for people coming in and telling someone what they don't have or do have, you know, because everyone's an expert. But that said, I think there's great comfort. Increasingly, we're finding more acceptance of the fact that, look, I'd rather not create this massive headache for my heirs. And, and, and being led down a path, uh, an inaccurate path of value being taken advantage of. Steve has, uh, and he's been doing this for many more years than we've had our firm together. He has, uh, you know, uh, has been told many times by some of the people that he's worked with decades ago that uh, I just want to let you know, Steve, that when uh, I pass, you know, in my safe deposit box, there's your phone number so that my wife doesn't get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I think there's more acceptance now of these conversations because, yeah, we're all going to die. I mean, that's, we don't have to, you know, that's not news from us. And uh, I think the fact that people feel that their families are going to get a fair shake is, is actually a comforting thought. And then in terms of what you have, this is, are you disappointed that you thought you had something, you don't have something? Well, you know what? That's just the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, it's like buying GE 12 years ago, you know. Uh, you know things happen, but I, I think uh, you know. Under people, in the end, it's 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 better to know what you have than to be disillusioned. And it also ha- has uh, you know a lot of value for tax planning, which again we uh, we can't comment on. But you know, there's advantages to under there's importance significance to understanding what you have because the IRS is going to find out, and uh, you know it it can help your wealth advisors to really come up with. You know a strategy that makes sense. If you tell them the cars are worth twenty million dollars and they're worth five, I mean that really didn't help much. And conversely, if you tell them they're worth five and it's worth twenty, that also doesn't help much. So, when you start to get into materiality of the value of these things as a relationship to the overall portfolio, it's important to have the value discussion. Uh, it's it's really critical. Uh, you know, there's, it's twenty twenty two. You're not getting away with much these days. You know, it's there's much more transparency as there should be record-keeping, as there should be best practice, as there should be full disclosure, as there should be. You know, we deal with a lot of people who have, have had great success in their life, and you don't want to start mucking around with cars just because you think you can save a little money here and there by not, you know, not having the right records. It doesn't make sense. So this is like going to the doctor. Do you want to go to the doctor? You don't have to. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a similar analogy, I would suggest
1: it's interesting to me that we keep coming back to the, the idea of provenance and record keeping being such an important uh, consideration here because i mean when i think of a car it's an item that i mean if you want to drive it you literally have to register it which i think makes it fairly unique um in that regard amongst collectibles you know if you collect toys you don't have to register your action figures to you know to play with them so you know it's it's, it's interesting that even despite that your know, general sort of requirement that that these ideas of provenance and and where these cars have been and, and what they've been through and whether they run or not is still such a uh, important consideration.
3: I would think so. Steve has many stories. Maybe you should share. One well, that's what yeah, I wanted yeah. to
1: get to after, because yeah. to get any more specific with our line of questioning, I'd have to get pretty hyper-specific into car collections. Um, and it'd be less and less useful for our audience. But Steve, who has worked with JLN himself in the past and who's been doing this forever, um, just, you know, you have any fun car collecting stories, collecting, working with collectors here, um, famous or otherwise that you'd like to you know take us out with?
2: Oh my gosh! I have so many stories. Um, you, you know, uh, one of one of my favorite stories, wh- which is why it really pays to do your homework, had to do with um a, a matrimonial case that I was working on, where it was a a husband and wife, and they they, they had a small collection, and included in the collection was um some early nineteen seventies, late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies Mopars, and as the divorce proceeded, the the husband said, honey, why don't you take the 1966 Dodge convertible and I'll take the 1970 Plymouth convertible. And, uh, you know, the wife said, okay. And then her attorney stepped in and said, no, 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 let's let's just get these cars appraised. Let's make sure we're, you know, dotting our I's and crossing our T's. And I was retained for that. And it turned out that the, the wife was, was just about ready to accept a, a beautiful 1966 Dodge Dodge convertible that might be worth $25,000. And the 1970 Plymouth convertible that the husband was going to get was a a Hemi-Cuda convertible that was worth a million and a half dollars at the time. So it it really shows the need to to do your homework, to do your diligence. Um, I mean, lots of fun stories. You know, there have been plenty of stories where I've walked into garages and discovered that people have had cars that were worth, you know, significant amounts of money that they just absolutely had no idea. They bought them 30, 40, 50 years ago and they had no idea what they had. And conversely, sometimes, you know, unfortunately, we walk into these collections and we see people who think they have something uh, because they were told they had it when they bought it 30 or 40, 50 years ago, only to find out that it's not what they were told. And they were living with this misbelief for, for decades and decades.
1: Sort of the both well, um, sides of that uh, antique Antiques Roadshow coin. I think that we've all seen on television. <laughs>
2: I think exactly. that's a great way to put it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: I got my producer in my ear right now telling us that we are running out of time. We've run a little bit over, but this is just such an interesting topic, I think, for myself and for our audience. And you guys have been such great guests. So, you know, I'm going to wrap things up. I'd love to thank um, Steve Linden and Peter Newman for for coming on the show and really sharing with us, you know, this interesting insight about you know, classic car is something I think that a lot of our you know, advisors and clients think are really cool and really interesting, even if they don't happen to do it themselves. So thanks for coming on, guys. Thank
3: you, David. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for having us.
1: And uh, for all my listeners, I'll I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous.
0: Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.